I've become comfortable in preaching after all these years that sometimes God won't give me His opening story until the morning, or there have been times where I've been worshiping and He would give the opening story. And it didn't come, and Ingrid asked me this morning as she saw me writing fervently in the living room, Do you, are you rewriting your sermon? And I said, no, I just don't have an opening story, and I'm thinking through the ideas. And then in the copier room this morning, I asked David, how are you opening your sermon tonight? And he told me, and I said, that's a really good opening. <laughs> so he's going to tell you it. Yeah, I'm good. Uh, so this past week, I was reading an article, and the thesis of the author was this, that we trust people based on one major thing, their level of attractiveness. Now, if you don't believe me, I can send you the article. There's been scientific studies done on this. So put yourself in this scenario. You're at a coffee shop, and you're seated there doing work on your laptop, and uh, a stranger comes and sits down next to you. They start doing work. You exchange some pleasantries. You learn this person's first name. Uh, but you're probably never going to see them again. So a few hours later, you're still sitting there at the coffee shop, and you realize that you need to use the restroom. Now, you have a decision to make. Will you pack up your laptop and all your stuff and take it with you because you don't trust this person? Or will you leave your stuff on the table and ask this person to watch over your things. Now, most people would say that this decision is based on a gut feeling. But what's the criteria of that gut feeling? Well, researchers at Rice, they conducted this exact study. And what they realized is this gut feeling was based off of one major thing. That stranger with you, that person's level of attractiveness. Now, what do I mean by attractiveness? I mean the symmetry of their face, the way they were dressed. And the more attractive the stranger, the more likely the people in the study were to trust this person. Now, uh, as I was doing a little more research this past week, I saw that there is an animal in the animal kingdom that does this very same thing, an animal that trusts people who are more attractive. It's a very complex animal a very intelligent animal, an animal that you've probably watched National Geographic specials on, it's the chicken. The chicken <laughs> prefers attractive people to unattractive people. Now, if you ask how did they do that with a chicken, scientists took two pictures, a picture of an attractive person and a picture of a less attractive person, and they held them in front of a group of hens. And the hens, almost every time, pecked at the picture of the attractive person. So what's the lesson in these two stories? Uh, <laughs> so I've always wondered why you trusted me so much. Now I get it. Let's pray and go home. We're in our summer series on the life of David, and there really are two stories that you need to know in the Bible to understand how God works with His people. The first one is the story of David. In fact, Jesus, who is the main person in the story, attaches His identity to Him because He's referred to multiple times as Jesus, 
son of David. And today we start our series of understanding why David was a man after God's own heart with his selection, the moment that he goes from being an ordinary shepherd boy to begin moving towards his destiny as a king. And if we will look at the principles in this, we will realize that God delights in using the ordinary to do extraordinary things so that He'll receive the glory, but oftentimes that's mostly realized when we decide to cooperate with God. His grace and mercy will overcome some of our lack of cooperation, as we'll see in this story, but His Holy Spirit flows most fluidly in the people that cooperate with His work on this earth. So let's go to the story. 1 Samuel 16, you may want to open your Bibles. We're going to highlight a few points out of the story. I realize that each of us come to the Bible story at different places. Some of us have read more than others, and so I need to set the context for this to make sense. You get it when you read a novel, the first 60 pages you endure. Sometimes they're very boring. You feel like you're lost in the details, but you need to know those details to understand the important things that are coming up. And there's some important things behind this account that we have today. The people of God had experienced a leadership failure. Leadership is extremely important, but lack of leadership will put people into difficult times. So we have the Pentateuch, uh, the first five books of the Bible, and then Joshua is the people coming into the new land, and Judges is the process of them organizing. It's two books before 1 Samuel. Judges is another way to say it would be leaders. They were different than how we see Judges today. And the Scripture repeatedly says in the book of Judges, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so God gave them leaders and judges, but we start to see in the story that even the leaders do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. We have this propensity in us as people to experience God's goodness, and then we become comfortable in it, and we forget that every goodness in this world has come from Him. And we start to do it our own way, and pretty soon trouble comes into the camp. Uh, Judges finishes with this word, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was, was right in his own eyes. It's actually setting us up for this story. story of Ruth comes in and we know that there are some godly women who keep the story alive. And open First Samuel, and not only are the leaders and the judges bad, the priests are bad. There's this one priest who still has an ear for God, his name is Eli. And he hears from the Lord, and the Lord uses him to put an anointing and connect Samuel to the Lord. Uh, the Scripture says that the word of the Lord was very rare in that day. Sounds like things that are going on in our day. When the Lord wants to bring a word, He picks someone. And the Lord uses Eli to get Samuel into the story. Samuel leads the people well. Uh, the Scripture says, none of the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And so Samuel, as you, he leads the people back. I read uh, this quote from a Russian novelist, Boris Pasternak, this past week. It is not revolutions and upheavals that clear the road to new and better days, but someone's soul inspired and ablaze. Samuel's soul was inspired and ablaze. 
and the people saw that. But then chapter 8 of this book we're in, it says, yet his sons did not walk in his ways. Isn't that a sad phrase? A man whose heart is ablaze, and yet it says, his sons did not walk in his ways. And the people said, you're about to die, Samuel, give us a king. Samuel was upset with this. He prayed to the Lord. It says it grieved his spirit. And the Lord gives this word to Samuel. I love it. He says, Obey the voice of the people, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And so Samuel goes along with the project, and a tall, strong, and handsome man, Saul, is made the first king. But it doesn't go well. Because Saul has everything on the external factor, he has nothing on the internal factor. He starts with the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit rejects him at some point in the story. And Samuel says to him, the Lord's about to take your throne away from you. You have been rejected as king. Okay, so do you have all the details now? It's really important to what's going on in this text. Verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Come on, Samuel, get over yourself. I'm about to do a reset. Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. When God wants to do something, he'll grab a person and start the work in that person. I love the language here. I have chosen a king for myself. We initiate things and God goes, okay, go ahead and do it for a while. See how that works out. And then when we get desperate, we cry out to God. Isn't that our case? And then God says, I have a king for me. I will anoint one whom I declare to you. And you will agree with that and he will become the king. Now, for those of you uh, who have not read the Bible much, anointing, was this thing that the ancient people did to consecrate something as, or someone or some place as belonging to God, but it was also a symbol of the work of God by His Spirit coming upon them. That's uh, part of what we do in anointing people for new tasks. Uh, in September, you will anoint Nathan as your new senior pastor. He's been selected by God, but you're agreeing with God in that process, and something will happen in that moment. It's already happening. Those of you who were at the annual meeting saw the mantle of leadership moving to him. Oh, it was so great to watch. And you'll see the anointing continue to flow and move in new ways in his life. This is what God does. He sets people apart and people of God agree with it and the power of God begins beginning released through the people. But in this story, we recognize that there's a lot of fear. Whenever God's going to do something new, there's fear. First, there's fear in Samuel. He says, what if Saul finds out about this? Remember, Samuel has already told Saul that you've been rejected. Now he's going with anointing oil to find another king. And we know, as the rest of the story, that Saul's an egomaniac. You didn't want him knowing that you were doing something behind his back. And there's fear even in the people of Bethlehem when Samuel comes. They say, what are you doing here? Maybe the prophet has brought a, a bad message. And so the Lord gives them this strategy. Go and tell them you're bringing a sacrifice. 
I love the practicality of our Lord. He actually gives them a scheme to get in so it doesn't get uh, uncovered. Now, I want to give you a, a so what early in the sermon. This is not part of it. You didn't pay for this. This is just a freebie here. God wants you to work in a combination of wisdom and Holy Spirit inspiration. Jesus said it this way, be as wise as serpents, but as gentle as doves. It's a great line. Wise as serpents, but as gentle as doves. When you do the work of the ministry, you need to be wise and use all of the leadership and things that you've learned, but you need to trust on the Holy Spirit. If you're confident in that, you're going to be in trouble. Listen, Holy Spirit without wisdom leads to chaos. Holy Spirit without wisdom leads to chaos. Wisdom without Holy Spirit leads to living death. And we need both in the flow of what God's doing. So Samuel comes to Jesse's home. Uh, Wouldn't it be fun to try to get in Jesse's mind? I'm going to choose one of your sons as king. You have to be sure that Jesse knew in his mind who it was going to be. And it wasn't David, because David's not there. Look what the text says. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Eliab is tall. He has all the stature of leadership. He's the one the chicken would have pecked at if the picture was in front of you. We know in the next chapter, he's one of the warriors of David. Maybe he was just home on leave. Maybe he's a guy that is ripped like Pastor David. So you can imagine my handsomeness with David's muscles. This is Eliab before you. And Samuel, the prophet, who's used to seeing from God, says, surely this is the Lord's anointed. There's so many cultural things happening here. First son, all of the realities. And the Lord gives us a clue to how this whole story is going to go. The Lord says, do not look at him for his height and his appearance. I look at the heart. And so the second son comes along. He's named as well. Jesse called Abinadab. And made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Can you get in the feeling of what's happening here? Abinadab is thinking, Boom! Eliab's not the guy. I'm the guy. And Samuel goes, Mm-mm. the next one comes. The story is so great that we don't get the rest of the names. Jesse is in disbelief as the father. The sons are humiliated. You can imagine all the anticipation they had in this process. And Samuel is a bit distressed. And he asked this question. Then Samuel said to Jesse, verse 11, 
are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for he will not sit down till, we will not sit down until he comes. Yeah, there's one more. He's the punk that we have out in the field caring for the sheep. We didn't even think it was worthwhile bringing him to this moment of consecration because we never envisioned that he would be someone that the Lord would select. Uh, the phrase here says the youngest, literally in the Hebrew, it could be the smallest. Eliab. David. I hope you're catching this. There's other clues in the text. He goes to Bethlehem to find the king. You don't find kings in Bethlehem. That's not where they're groomed. And Jesse is a farmer. You don't get royalty out of a farmer's family. Everything is set up against this. And he sent and brought him in. David smells like sheep. But he was ruddy and beautiful eye, had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and left. This is where everything begins for David. David goes from the shepherd runt to the kingly runt. Nothing changes on the external of him. But at that moment, the Scripture says the Spirit of God rushed upon him. And in those moments, God was fabricating everything inside that would make him the leader that God would use for the people from that time going forward. So what's my real so what this morning? There's literally dozens here. But let me just pick a few. First one is this. God sees differently than we do when we look in the natural. God sees differently than we do when we look in the natural. Now, why, do you say, why did I add look in the natural? Because Samuel, in the beginning, did not see as God sees when he was looking in the natural. But when the Holy Spirit gave him eyes to see, he could see actually what was going on. And this is a corrective to us, especially people that live in Greenwich and Fairfield County. We are some of the most beautiful, outwardly, well-kept, sophisticated, educated, and highly financed people in the world. And we can start to live in such a way that we judge everything by the external. And it's a dangerous place to be. I'll use some words of the great counselor Bob, um, Bob Newhart. Is it Bob Newhart? Stop it. <laughs> Just stop it. God delights in breaking our bubbles and how he works. I thought of two New Testament passages this week. Matt, throw the first one up there. 1 Corinthians 1, 28 and 29. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's God's word. Maybe the most important thing God is doing doesn't have an appearance of amazing on it. And it's a warning to us not to judge things on the external. Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, says this, So from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. It's a decision to choose to see people and see yourselves the way God sees. And not in our own way. One of the things I would love the Holy Spirit to do for the majority of us today is to give us God eyes. Wouldn't that be something? That we would walk through this world and see people and situations the way God sees them. What kind of hope and faith and purpose that would bring to our world? So what's the now one in that? Well, first, personally, what limitations have you put on yourself because of the wrong categories? Or maybe I would say it this way, what limitations have you put on yourself because of the birth order that you were brought into this world? God wants to break through some of that in your life. That's why we have living free prayer teams here to find out the spaces that we're still stuck in old ways of thinking. The other thing I think of this is related to our legacy. What small Davids are around you that are just waiting for a rush of the Spirit on them? We were praying in the prayer chapel as we do every uh, Sunday before worship, and this image came to me of all of our kids that gather in this church. And I pray this, something to this effect. Lord, we look at them and they're so cute. They make us laugh during children's sermons. They bring so much energy to us. But what apostles, prophets, and evangelists, and teachers, and uh, pastor shepherds are among our kids that are just waiting for one of us to be the conduit of the rush of the Holy Spirit on them. I'm here today because of a church that agreed with the rush of the Holy Spirit on my life. Seeing Nathan's parents here, he's one of those products as well. And I'm not just thinking in missionary and pastor categories now. I'm talking about in every vocation where we're called to bring the kingdom of God. What would happen if you would pick one of those ruddy, snotty, punky kids and see them the way God sees them and agree with what God is saying over them and call out the very essence of their heart? Wow. That's overwhelming. 
God would radically change our world. Think beyond your biological family. How about the difficult people in your neighborhood or where you work or where you move and where you find your life? Who's the person that's the outcast that is simply waiting for the tap on the shoulder and the person that will believe in them and speak into them and be the conduit of the ministry of the Holy Spirit? The same spirit that came on David is the same spirit who will come upon you to release these things into other people. I have about three or four other so what's, but I think this is where God wanted us to land today. I think at the deepest longing in every one of us is legacy. A lot of the stuff we do for success in this world is really just us wanting to live into legacy. Your legacy isn't what you leave for people. It's what you leave in people. I charge you this week to release the power of the Holy Spirit through the people you meet along the way.